a month ago, I went um, to Israel with my family um, because um, I felt like I couldn't bear to be um, to be far away anymore. Um, and we've been with family and friends. We've been uh, we went to a short visit, um, and it might not feel that way, but everything. Um, everywhere the war is being felt everywhere even even if we're four months after um i think that people are not even noticing it anymore but um i live in a very small town and um in the community center there are everywhere there are pictures of the of the hostages of course but also like teddy bears that are um hung um up there i went to my synagogue in uh in 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 shabbat and and they are um, um, saying out loud the names of all of the hostages one by one. Um, I went to see my optometrist and he said, um, that he still try, is trying to find a tactical helmet for his son that is in Gaza four months after. I went to speak with a car dealer and she, she cried out that she can't deal with this government anymore. So everyone are, it's, it's, it's everywhere. And then I, I came back here. Um, and well, obviously the war is not felt everywhere, but, um, you know, city council meetings are being held under, um, heavy protest in Berkeley, um, where the protesters are really trying to push the city council to, um, pass a resolution, um, for ceasefire. The mayor of Berkeley really, really resists it. That's why he's being named right now as genocide Jesse by um the protesters um in 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 Berkeley and I realized something um Rabbi Yehuda Halevi um a famous poet from the Jewish poet from the middle um for the medieval time um he has a famous piyut a poem where he says my heart is in the east and I am at the end of the west and I realized that I am at the end of the West, but my heart is actually in both places. My heart is in the East and my heart is in the West. So what I want to talk about today um, is about two issues um, that are very much present in both places where my heart is, where my heart breaks. Um, the first is the return of Jewish vulnerability. Um, and the second is the way that we conduct disagreements as a community and as a people. And I want to talk about what is, what is, what is the future? What is, um, our way forward? So the return of Jewish vulnerability. October 7th have brought, um, with it a return of a time that we have thought, um, has passed, is no longer part of our presence and, and existence as a people, right? We have thought that we have defied Jewish history, Jewish history for um, decades and decades was defined by the experience of Jewish vulnerability, of Jewish persecution, of Jewish victimhood. And we have said to ourselves in the in the second half of the 20th century and and ongoing and definitely in the 21st century that these days have gone because of Zionism, because of a powerful Jewish state, Jewish sovereignty, and because of American exceptionalism. We are a part of this society. We are a part of this state. Jewish history for so long, Rabbi Soloveitchik is calling it the experience of, of Jewish vulnerability. For a lot, for so long, we are, we are approaching, uh, Purim now. And in the book of Esther, there's a segment there right before the decision on the on the well genocide of Jews is being is being um accepted there's a point where um Haman says to King Ahasuerus there's a people and they're dispersed and they're alone and basically you can do whatever you want to them that was the experience of 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 the Jewish people for so long lack of agency lack of home and basically not a subject, but an object that other, that the powers that be can do whatever they want with them. 
Um, that was not our experience, um, not my experience growing up, not the experience of our generation um, of, again, of um, of Jewish sovereignty and of American exceptionalism. And then October 7th happens. I want to start with a poem. What happened after October 7th is um, an unbelievable scope of Israeli um, art and create and creativity and creation. Um, you know, t- tons of t- texts and poems and 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 uh, um, and murals and 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 postcards and whatnot. And Spotify lists. Um, and Spotify lists. Absolutely, there's a great podcast episode of the Promised um, episode where there is specifically around um, songs of war. It's phenomenal, I think. Um, if anyone wants recommendations on who's to follow afterwards, I would love. I would love to. I would love to give them. And at some point, I started collecting a lot of these poems and translating them to English. Um, so this is one of them. The first source is by Aaron Vass. He's an Israeli poet. And um, and what I want to do, I'm going to read this. This is from October. I'm going to read this, and then I'm going to read the equivalence in Deuteronomy. Okay. So this this poem is called Zahol, Remember. Remember what Amalek did to you on your journey after you left Egypt. That's the exact same words where source number two, the, the, the uh, text uh, from Deuteronomy starts. Remember what Amalek did to you on your journey after you left Egypt. How he surprised you on the march and when you were on European soil in the gas chambers and incinerators, in ghettos that are crying in pain, and while sitting in the enveloped towns, how he pursued and captured and tortured and murdered from youth to the elderly, from toddler to old, children and women in one day, remember, remember and never forget. There is a through line from the Holocaust to October 7th in the consciousness of Israeli society and in the consciousness of the Jewish people. We have started talking at the first few days about historical um, references, right? So we've talked about, um, at the beginning, it was, this is Israel's 9-11. You don't understand. Uh, this is Pearl Harbor. This is like the Holocaust. Um, and this uh, image of the Holocaust is so strong in the consciousness but what's interesting here for me is to um, is to compare the story of Amalek in Deuteronomy to um, to this poem. So I'm going to read source number two. Remember what Amalek did to you on your journey after you left Egypt. Amalek is the mythical enemy of the people of Israel, and the reason why Amalek is the mythical enemy of the people of Israel is because um, Amalek. Um, comes after the Israelites when they're on their most vulnerable, they are the most weak, um, and he comes after them. Um, this is verse 18. How undeterred by fear of God, he surprised you on the march when you are famished and weary and cut down all the stragglers in your rear. Therefore, when the Lord your God grants you safety from all your enemies around you, in the land that the Lord your God is giving you as, a, as her, a hereditary portion, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. So I'll talk later about the part of blotting out Amalek and how all of this relates to the ICJ um, lawsuit um, about genocide in Israel. But what I want to emphasize here is that there are directives in this text and in the first text, two of the directives of the directives are exactly the same: to remember and not to forget. The third does not appear in the poem. The third is to blot out, and the directive to blot out the memory of Amalek. Notice when it comes. It comes when you are when you are safe from all of your enemies in your land. And that safety, that notion of safety is absent from the poem 
in the first poem. And the reason for that is that it's not only a return of vulnerability, but it's sitting in the, in, you know, in, in the land of Israel and feeling unsafe, feeling unsafe, even though there's sovereignty, even though there's power, you know, we have friends in, um, um, in the Gaza envelope, decades of friendships. Um, and they told us, it's not as if we didn't know it can happen. Everyone knew that it can happen. The attack itself. I mean, no one thinks that there aren't enemies that want to kill us. But the surprise was the military always told us, you have to hold on for five minutes, 10 minutes. Just hold on for five to 10 minutes and we're there. You know, I'm, I'm sure, I mean, I will never forget and I'm sure you will never forget either. It's, it, it was evening, right? At our place. And, and you see as long as, as the night goes on for hours and hours and hours. And I, you know, I'm, I'm, I was, I was going on Twitter. Um, and you, you just see threads of people begging for help and no one answers until, until they just don't call anymore. Um, it's the helplessness, not the enemies, but the helplessness of, and the unsafety that um, that defined the experience of October 7th that is still ongoing in the consciousness of Israelis. And I think that for a lot of the Jewish people as well, that was the first attack. Then came the second attack. The second attack is the betrayal of all of those people who we saw as our allies we believe that our allies hold the same values as we. Um, we saw ourselves as good friends and allies to other communities who, who wasn't there for us and not only wasn't there for us, but international institutions. I'm going to say specifically feminist institutions because that's my milieu. Um, we're not only not there, but we're actually against us even before, way before Israel ever started um, its response in Gaza. Um, you know, again, I, I told you, I'm, I'm in gender studies and legal studies, and we have been educating ourselves that when someone who was attacked approaches us, our response is, I believe you. Our first response is, I believe you. And the reason for that is because we know from research that when someone does not believe you, it's like a second attack. That was the second attack. The disbelief, that singling out of, of Jewish attacks, um, experiences of victimhood was the second attack. Um, <clears throat> we believe you unless you're a Jew, basically. So let's talk about anti-Semitism for a second. Um, the nature of anti-Semitism in general is that it always, and, and we talked, Michelle and I talked earlier today, that I'm always, I, I build my life on logic. And when something doesn't make sense, I don't know how to deal with it. I can explain a lot of things, but I cannot explain anti-Semitism. I cannot explain it. I know how it works, but I can't explain its logic. And what we're seeing today, so anti-Semitism have always worked um, in a way that society's worst sin at that moment is going to be the sin that the Jews are going are going to be blamed at. So classic anti-Semitism um, um, identifies the Jews as being on the fringes of society, you know, their eyes are not blue enough. They're the ultimate other. They are not, they don't have the blonde hair. The new anti-Semitism or new war, I should say, the, the anti-Semitism that is mainstream today in progressive circles around the world, not just in the U.S., is an anti-Semitism that sees um, the Jews as committing the worst crime in Western society, which is colonialism, which is being powerful, which is being white. Because right now our world is built on a binary. 
You're either good or bad. You're either occupied or or you're the occupier. And there's nothing in between. There is no room at all for any nuance. And ironically, ironically, now the Jews that weren't white enough are becoming the symbol of whiteness in um, in progressive circles. It's I saw someone um, who said something that was so accurate. Um, again, on Twitter, I'm a lot on Twitter. Um, he said that it's like um, Schrodinger's cat, you know, Schrodinger's cat, that he simultaneously is dead and alive inside the box until you open it. So for the anti for the anti semites today, um, the Jews are both at the same time white and not white until you find out if the anti anti semite is from right or from left, um, which is which is incredibly ironic. Um, the ICJ lawsuits, the lawsuit to the International Court of Justice um, is part of exactly the same thing, though it's it's much more calculated. So what happens is at the end of December, um, South Africa is filing a suit to the International Court of Justice saying that Israel is committing genocide in Gaza. Um, and the legal case is very clear. Um, Israel is engaged not in genocide, but in war. Um, in Gaza, war is horrible. It's horrible. War really, really, really sucks. Um, that doesn't mean, that doesn't turn it into a genocide. Genocide has very specific um, conditions. One of them is intent, intent that is connected to actions, which is something that is, I think it's it's almost unprovable unless it's really, really insanely corrupt, which I don't believe because I, I know at least some of... Um, of the teams and the judges that are um, that are sitting there, or at least the last version of the judges, um, they just now um, the court had a round of of changing of the judges. Right now, the judge from Lebanon is the chief justice. So good luck for us. Um, but what's interesting in here, and we can delve into the details of this lawsuit later if if you want to, but that's not my uh, main issue here, but what's interesting here, I want to identify the fact that what happens, the treaty against genocide was created um, as a lesson from the Holocaust. It was lobbied by um, a Jewish American lawyer, Raphael Lemkin. Um, and right now it is being weaponized against the Jewish state um, in a way that is incredibly cynical, but is very, very calculated. Because, and if if you if you um, delve a bit more deeply into it, the goal, and it's not really hidden, but the goal is to link between Israel and genocide. It doesn't matter what the result, the legal result, will be in five years from now. It doesn't matter. Because the goal is that in today's living rooms, people will just say Israel and genocide, Israel and genocide. And once it says enough times, this will influence not this war, but the next one. The next war is being decided by in the living rooms today. That's the stated goal. And to accommodate this goal, there is a lot of money involved money from Iran. Um, and I mean, the Iran is the, is the one that is proved. Um, there's speculations about, about other, other countries that are participating in. Now, please don't mistake what I'm saying right now as, um, as a message of support for October 6th Israeli government. Not at all. Not by any means. I, it is my opinion, and I think the opinion of the vast majority of Israelis, um, that this is by far the worst government that Israel ever had with irresponsible statements and actions. Um, but that doesn't justify 
the anti-Semitism and it doesn't justify or it doesn't deny Israel's right to, to self-defense. Now, I have bad news and I have good news. Let me start with the bad news. Um, we have to take Jewish vulnerability very, very seriously now. Um, and it's dangerous twice. The first time it's dangerous is because Jews are unsafe and that's not good. Um, by the way, I don't think that they are, the Jews in America are as unsafe as maybe we make it look like. I think we need to distinguish between anti-Semitism, which is bad, and we need to take care of it, and physically unsafety. I think it's diff- it's two different things. Um, but I have another concern. By us being, um, it's important to take vulnerability seriously, but I would really hate for us to be only involved in our vulnerability. Um, in the 1980s, David Hartman wrote um, a piece that he called um, Auschwitz and Sinai. And he defined, he distinguished between two types of Jews, Auschwitz Jews and Sinai Jews. Auschwitz Jews are obsessed with their vulnerability. Uh, they have a good reason to. But because they're always, because they are always concerned about their vulnerability, Sometimes being in a consciousness, a mindset of always being a victim, it gives you a free pass to do a lot of things that we might not want um, to do. And it's the ironic piece is that right now, the I think that a lot of people who see themselves as victims from the Palestinian side give a lot of justifications to horrifying things that are happening. And he, at the time, he was very concerned that the state of Israel will base itself only on vulnerability, only on being um, Auschwitz Jews, and everyone hates us, and all the world is against us. And if all the world is against us, and we need to be always scared, then we can do things um, that are maybe immoral. Sinai Jews, on the other hand, are focused on how should our Judaism look like? What does it mean? What do our, what does I'm not good at this, do, does. Uh, what does our Judaism mean? What has to happen? And what I'm, what I'm concerned now, when I return to Auschwitz and Sinai, so David Hartman said, we need to be Sinai Jews. I'm not going to say that because I think that what October 7th taught us is that we're Auschwitz Jews and we cannot run away from being Auschwitz Jews, unfortunately. But we need to be both. We need to be Sinai Jews too. I don't want our kids to only grow up in a world of Jewish victimhood and vulnerability. That's also part of our responsibility, I think. Here are the good news. The good news is that although we are in a um, in an era of Jewish vulnerability, it is nothing like the Jewish vulnerability of of our history. It is nothing like 75 years ago or 80, 80 years ago. And I want to read together um, source number three. So what happens is my sister is a history teacher in Israel and they have meetings of history teachers, you know, periodic meetings of history teachers. And they needed to figure out how we, how the teachers are going to teach the Holocaust after October 7th. Uh, because it's in the curriculum. So what are, what are you doing? So she had a meeting and then she came back home. And then in, in the group chat, um, one of the teachers sent a text from her grandmother. And I asked for her permission to translate and use it. Um, so this is a text from Nehama to her granddaughter, Naama. Naama, it's very nice and important that you teach history of the Holocaust. If it's easier for you to teach what's happening now through the Holocaust, you can say it is similar in the evilness and hatred, but this is not and will not be a Holocaust because there's an army here, because there's a state, because there's rebirth. We have to be thankful for it and strengthen our youth for their energy, for their actions and contribution for the people of Israel. When I was their age, I was a servant of a Gentile. 
they are free in their land, strengthen, strengthen their faith, their volunteering, their joy, and strengthen all the history teachers. I'm a Holocaust survivor. I lost my son in the Yom Kippur War, and I'm alive. I'm Israel Chai. So our vulnerability is back, but it's not the same. We are vulnerable. We are powerful. The day after October 7th, you know, Israel started to defend itself. And, you know, I was, I was called at some point to, um, by JCRC in the Bay Area to speak with California state assembly members and, um, and legislators. Who would have done that 80 years ago or 90 years ago, right? It's, it's complete. So we're talking about anti-Semitism and we're complaining about anti-Semitism, but we have someone to complain to, which is, in, which is, um, absolutely different. So our vulnerability is back. Now what? Um, and this is another poem. Um, this is a poem by Rabbi Elchanan Neil. Um, Source number four, now we need a new Torah. Now, like air to breathe, we need a new Torah. Now, gasping for air and with choking throats, we need a new Mishnah and a new Gemara and a new Kabbalah, a new ascents of the soul. And inside all the brokenness and the salt and the desolation, now a new Hasidism and a new Zionism, and a new Rav Kook, and a new Brenner, and a new Leah Goldberg, and a new Yechavedeah. These are uh, different thinkers, Jewish thinkers and, and creators and artists, for religious and secular, and new art, and new poetry, and new literature, and new cinema, and new old words, and new ancient souls from the storehouse and a new love out of the terrible weeping. For we were all washed away in the rivers of Re'im and Be'eri, and we have no mountain within us, nor other tablets. Um, the, the, in, in Sinai, the first time where um, the people of Israel receiving the tablets, um, and they sin, and Moses breaks the tablets, but then, he has the mountain and he has new tablets. He says, we have no mountain within us, nor other tablets and no Moses and no strength. And now everything is in our hands. We need right now, not only to rebuild ourselves physically, but we need to rebuild our Torah where we have experienced such breaking that we need to redefine ourselves. And that, and that falls on, on, on everything that we have experienced. After October 7th, I've been asking myself, who am I? Who was I? Was I stupid before in, in, in the values that I believed? How can it be that the people who have walked with me, who was my, who were my partners are no longer my partners? One of my, I'm, I'm ashamed to say it now. I'm, t- I'm telling you the, the second time today. I'm ashamed to say that one of my mentors in, when I studied at Columbia University, at Columbia Law School, now I'm ashamed to say that she was my mentor because the things that she have written ever since October 7th, she wants Israelis out of the campus because they're a danger to our students. She's a feminist scholar that thinks that we need evidence about what happened to women on October 7th. And I was asking myself, this is my crowd? This is my people? But then when I hear the people from the other side, other side, and I hear them say what I want to hear, but I despise them as people and human beings. So what is going on right now? How can that be? A new Torah, the term new Torah, is from a midrash from, um, how do you translate a midrash? I don't know. Okay, great. From a midrash in, um, in, in Leviticus Rabbah. And it means not completely new, not independently new, but new on the heels of the, of the old. So we have the old. It's not gone yet. It's still somewhere within us, but we need to rebuild 
on it. So we need to figure out what does liberalism have to offer against pure evil? We need to figure out what does, um, what are the new commitments of liberalism that allow us to protect ourselves as a people? How should we navigate being powerful and vulnerable? Because we're also powerful and there are limits. There should be limits and red lines to our power, even though we are vulnerable. How do we balance keeping our communities safe while also being the Jews that we want to be? And maybe also, maybe not now, but along the way, also being allies, being returning to being the allies that we want to be, even if we are very disappointed and betrayed. We need to rebuild Israel and we need to rebuild Zionism because Zionism itself took a very big blow on October 7th. And no Moses, there is no leadership in Israeli politics right now. There is anti-leadership in Israeli politics right now. And there is no strength, but he says at the end. And now everything is in our hands. You know, the protest movement in past life, the protest movement against the judicial overhaul, um, what a year we had, right? We're, no wonder we're exhausted. Um, the protest movement, one of the slogans of the protest movement was, Nafaltem al hador alo nachon. You, um, you, you're trying to deal with the, you're trying to mess with the wrong generation. Um, this is, this is not the generation to mess with. So there is no leadership on the top, but on the bottom, there is an unbelievable, inspirational movement of people who are determined to take this opportunity. It was forced on us, but it's gonna, but people are going to take this opportunity because this is their shift and they're not going to mess it up. Um, I've seen a, a video of Eitan Kabel is a, um, he, he's a former MK um, of the labor and he's, I think he's 60 something and he's in reserve now. He's still serving. And um, he did a video with um, his young soldiers. Um, and he says, you know, for generations, generations for years for years we have been complaining on our young people we've been saying that they're um spoiled the gen z they're always in their screens in their phones they're not in reality um and they're phenomenal they're phenomenal and he says this generation is the best generation that we ever had and this generation is going to rebuild our country. Now we're getting to the second challenge. And if the first challenge was maybe more external, the second cha- the second challenge is more internal. Um, you know, the first Shabbat after October seventh, um, I found myself in in with around thirty five people in in my house, and I'm not exactly sure how it happened. We came back from synagogue. And we invited one family, but then people just, I mean, on the way, a few people came. And then my daughter went to take a kid from the playground and returned with two other families. And the B'not Shirut came, like everyone came and people came with food. And at some point, so every room in the house was occupied with either adults or kids. And every now and then, and we were sitting outside and every now and then someone would get into the kitchen and wash some fruit and bring them to the table. And I turned to my friend and I said, you know, this feels awfully lot like a Shiva, but in a good way, because we could only laugh together because we knew that we were also crying together. Um, and the same happened in Israel after October 7th, uh, an, um, an amazing sense of unity and solidarity. But this is changing. It, it, it's not sticking. Um, 
and you know we're hearing increasing calls for ceasefire or or for for uh, questioning at least the the continuation of the war um and in Israel you know and on October 6th Israel was on the verge of civil war really on the verge of a civil war and then October 7th happened and and supposedly um you know everyone are united but the disagreements are still here and there are strong political forces that are trying to get us back into um into October 6th every before October 7th it was supposedly on the judicial overhaul but it was every social rift that Israel ever had was out there Ashkenazis Mizrahi right and left religious secular the participation of the Haredim the ultra orthodox in society and now it's even more um um in in the military and you know there's um Israel's Saturday Night Live, Eretz Nehederet. Um, it's it's a satire show, very popular, and it did some very good pieces, skits on on anti-Semitism. But one skit that wasn't translated was um, was a um, song based on a very famous Israeli song by Arik Einstein. Um, how good it is that you came back home. It's a, it's a classic song. It says like, how wonderful it is that you came back home. How was it? And stuff like that. So you see a, a Shabbat dinner table with a soldier um, returning from reserve after 60 days. And he's singing, um, oh, how good it is that I came back. Um but you see what happens is that the family around the table is arguing like crazy, like before, and blame each other and BB and whatever on the war. And you see him sitting with his eyes dead, completely dead. Um, it's, it's, it was also very powerful because the, the actor that played, that sang this, um, is a comedian named Udi Kagan who um, who is famously dealing with his post-trauma from 2014, for the, from the 2014 war. And he's singing, and at some point, and he ends the song in um, everything here is the same as if nothing was broken. And he finishes the song and he says, um, I'm going. And they ask him, where are you going? He says, I'm, I'm going to rest. I'm going back to Gaza. I'll see you in 60 days. And the thing was, it, it just, it was the people in God, the, the, the soldiers that are fighting right now are fighting together. Doesn't matter if they are secular or religious, if they're right wing or left wing. But it, but back home in Israel, the forces that are trying to separate the political forces, and I'll say current government, um, that is that is gaining political gains from separating and from um and from distributing hate is continuing to do the same thing and so that the re- that when the reservists are back they're shocked they're shocked and they're dismayed um so two keys on moving forward and this generation decided that they are going that we are going to move forward um, and overcoming the disagreements. And I want to say here, disagreements are going to stay because there are different visions as to what Israel should be. They're going to stay. Question is, how are we going to conduct these disagreements? So I want to say two things. One, um, I'm going to take, I'm, I'm going to, um, use this source from Vaikra Rabba, another midrash. It's a very famous story. Um, source number five, it's a very famous parable. Um, I'm going to start from the second paragraph. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai taught, this may be compared, it's like it's every, um, all of Israel are, um, I'll start from the first paragraph. Israel is a scattered sheep. Why are Israel likened to a sheep? Just as with a lamb, when it is hurts on the head or on any other limb, all its limbs feel it. Even so it is with Israel. When one of them sins, all of them feel it. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai taught, this may be compared to the case of men on a ship, one of whom took a boar 
and began boring beneath, beneath his own place. His fellow, his fellow travelers said to him, what are you doing? Said he to them, what does that matter to you? Am I not boring under my own place? Said they, because the water will come up and flood the ship for us all. Usually this parable is being used to say, you see, when you're doing something wrong, we're all suffering. I want to use it as a different, in a different way and to say, actually, this is a model on how we should react when we think that someone is boring a hole under all of us. And we need to remember, it's not as if there's, um, there's one side that is clearly right and the other side that is clearly boring a hole under us. Some are, and there are limits, but the tent is actually pretty wide and there are a lot of disagreements. And one of the keys is to speak and to disagree in a way that our, that the other side is able to hear. Notice that the first thing, thing that they're doing is asking a question. What are you doing? They're not yelling. They're asking a question. What are you doing? And then they're explaining. They're talking. And I know that a lot of people right now in Israel are saying, stop with all this unity. Enough. It's nonsense. And it only gives the extremists um, more power to rule. And I know that this is, this is, this is a real possibility. But I also know that no one is going anywhere. And everyone will have to live together in that land somehow. Masua, can you say a little bit more about how unity is seen as the fundamentalist will happen in the world? Yes, because what happens is the liberals are, or the people who are more um, moderate are saying, we're going to talk unity. And then the fundamentalists are using the talk on unity in order to uh, promote their own agenda because the moderates are saying, okay, I'm going to give up. But then the fundamentalists never give up on anything. And, and to be honest, that is what we are seeing in the Israeli government right now, where the moderates are saying, okay, I'm going to be responsible. Benny Gantz and Gadi Eisenkot are saying, we're going to be responsible and we're going to join the government in order to join the war cabinet in order to make more legitimate this war and control, you know, the, I don't want Ben Gvir in the war cabinet, so I will get into the war cabinet. But that allows Netanyahu to keep his extreme government. So it's always a question of where you draw the line and say, I'm not participating. I'm not going to help the extremists um, succeed because I'm a team player. Because team players, everyone should be team players. But on the other hand, this is... You know, this is our country. So what are they supposed to do? Leave it to the Bengvils and to the Smotlichs? That's also a question. Um, but right now I'm actually not talking about the politicians. I'm talking about the people because I think that the tikkun will come from the bottom, will come from the people who have had enough and who are, um, you know, from the people who are sitting in this skit and singing as if nothing was broken, when everything was broken. The same people who are saying, we have no Moses, but and we have no strength anymore, but we have to do it because it's up to us, because it's our generation and we have no choice. That's the first key, to be able to speak with one another and to understand that there are severe disagreements, but we have to be able to conduct them differently if we want to live in this country. And I think that we can say something also about the ability of the Jewish community in the U.S. to disagree. Um, I think that there are definitely some um, limits as to who is a part of the community or who, who brought, who took themselves out of the community. But I think it's also important to be able to speak with one another, um, even though we highly disagree. And the second um, is to really understand that that's basically what I said before, to understand that the stakes are too high. 
And that if we cannot do that, um, Israel will be destroyed. We cannot get back to October 6th. And I think that, m- that most of the people understand that. And I want to give you just one example of it. And the example is from a letter, um, a public letter that was written by an Israeli to Avigail Lidan. Avigail Lidan is the four-year-old um, American Israeli who was taken hostage alone. Both of her parents were murdered. Her siblings uh, were hiding and she was taken um, captive alone. And after she returned, Ta'il, that's the woman who wrote the letter, um, wrote this public letter to her. I'll give you some of the background. Ta'ir, Ta'ir's father was born on the day that Israel was established. On that same day, his father was killed in the independence war. And three years later, his mother died of cancer. So he was an orphan like Avigail. And Ta'ir wanted to write this letter um, to Avigail. And she says the following. I want you to know that my father is the most optimistic and sweet and funny person that I know. And he's filled with happiness and love. Together with my mother, they created a big and beautiful family, five children and 13 grandchildren. And we, because of his life, a special family belong here to this country and this state, connected to it and to each other. Every year on Memorial Day on Yom Zikaron, we go together with my father to his father's grave. And then we go home to Kineret and celebrate my father's birthday. I always say that we are the story of the country. I wish, Avigail, that you will be raised with love, safe, surrendered, surrounded with family and good friends and your sweet and brave siblings. And know that you have an entire loving people behind you. Right now, there's almost no distinction between the individual, the family, and the nation in Israel. There's an understanding. It's important. Individualism is important, and I'm sure we'll return to it. But there's an understanding right now that the stakes are too high. The stakes are too high, and that all of us right now, we have to be the story of this country. We have to be. It's on our shoulders right now. We have no other choice. There is a movement of fixing of tikkun you know there's uh one of one of the phenomenons of this war is that people are starting to um people are going on the streets to escort um with flags to escort either those who um who died in battle or when the hostages returned so what happens is that every time that something happens um either again when when the hostages returned you would see the people of Ofakim, which is a very right-wing city, out on the streets in the middle of the night with flags. Tons and tons of people are singing and crying and happy where those left-wing kibbutzniks are coming back from captivity. And you see in every single city in Israel right now, when a soldier falls, and unfortunately, there has been a lot of cases, People are out on the streets with flags of Israel escorting their family, the, the soldier's family, in their last, um, on their last journey. There is a movement of tikkun in Israel. To end, I want to say something about history and something about hope. Um, when I just got to America, um, which was two and a half years ago, um, I, when I was invited to speak, every time someone would say, but finish with hope, okay? Uh, finish with something optimistic. Just end, don't, don't end, don't, let's not be depressed at the end, okay? Now I'm an American. I know. Oh now I'm an Israeli. And so I'm, but I have manners, so I didn't roll my eyes to their face, but only in my head. Um, but then I understood something. It took me about a year to understand that hope is not something nice to have, but hope is crucial for for our being. Someone actually told me yesterday, isn't it 
crazy that you Israelis are so cynical about hope when your national anthem is Hatikun. And I was like, huh? I didn't think about that. <laughs> um, so I want to I wanna read one poem by an Israeli called Hope. This is number seven. For weeks, I am bleeding poems. I call the file Grief, Delete. I call it October, Change to Shiva or Shiva. Replace to Abyss, Change, Abysses. I call it like hell. I call it hope. Instruct the computer to remember. It answers saving hope. Someone told me last week, if you're hopeful, maybe there's hope for me to be hopeful. And I told him, you know what? I'm not hopeful, but I'm practicing hope. Like Iris, like this poet, I instruct myself to save hope because I honestly believe that there, that we have no other choice but to remain hopeful. And I'll say some last, some last thing about history. This is not new. This experience that we have is part of our DNA. Um, one of the famous stories about, of, of October 7th is the story of Rachel from Ofakim. Rachel is an elderly woman. She was kept hostage in her, in her house with her husband for hours and hours. Her son, who's part of the police force, was outside waiting to rescue her. And she needed, and she knew that, and she needed to stall. So what did she do to stall the hostages, the, the terrorists? She was going on full Jewish parent and starting to offer food. She made them cookies. She was saying, she's telling, the, the, the retelling is, is amazing because she's also lovely. And she's saying, oh, you look so pale. Have you eaten something today? Have you drank something today? Um, and she became an instant hero. And the day after, um, someone wrote, some anonymous person wrote a tweet that became um, viral. And it says the following, in the end, we will win. And in a thousand years, there would be another holiday about how they tried to destroy us and failed. And the minhag, the custom, will be to eat Rachel cookies or something. <laughs> And that encapsulates exactly that. We had tragedies in our past. We will probably have tragedies in our, in our future, but we will still be here and we'll celebrate a holiday and we will eat because that's what we're doing. And we will celebrate the stories of inspiration. By the way, what I brought you here. So this is a mural in Tel Aviv of Rachel. Um, like what's her name? Rosie the riveter. riveter. Um, and the cookies are actually sold in Israeli bakeries with the uh, written on it so you'd have something to offer, which is incredibly Israeli. Um, thank you.